welcome back to this week's winners on 88.3 FM, WXOU. Max Verstappen wins the Austrian Grand Prix, and once again, he's crushed the opposition at the Red Bull Ring. James Harden, a deep shot. Oh, what a catch! George Springer's doing it all tonight. William Carlson looking for a second short-handed goal in his many nights. And shot score! What a goal! Through his own legs! It's over. The Bucks have done it. The long wait has ended after a half century. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions once again. Inside to TJ Hawkinson. Touchdown Lions. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to this week's winners on 88.3 FM WXOU. It's an all sports show. My name is Benny. So glad you could join me today. Talk about some very interesting stories throughout sports this week. Follow me on Twitter at TWW Sports to follow along to what I have to say and join the conversation. So we have another great show on tap today, albeit it'll be a little shorter than normal, but uh, we'll start out with some basic news from around the leagues, and then we'll jump into some NFL preseason Lions talk. Uh, and finally, uh, we'll talk about NASCAR and IndyCar's very interesting weekend at the Brickyard, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So stick around, it's going to be a good one. First, we'll start with some news from around the leagues. Uh, first up, we have the NHL, and the Detroit Red Wings have been busy over the past week signing Adam Ernie to his contract after arbitration, leading to a two-year, about $2 million contract per season. They also signed Jacob Vrana to a three-year, 5.25 million deal. And this is not far off from what Anthony Mantha made when he was with the Detroit Red Wings before his trade. It makes absolute sense to give Rana uh, that kind of money because he's going to be filling in a spot in that top six, most likely on that first or second line all year long. So it's going to be great to see Rana have a full season with the Red Wings, and it's going to be nice to see a full season in general. The Red Wings are gearing up for training camp. The team looks very new. We talked about last week. There are endless possibilities to what this team can do, not only this year, but in the next couple of years. Uh, I think, you know, and, and don't quote me on it, but I really do think this team is a fringe playoff team. I, I think that they're going to show massive improvement. And the biggest thing is, if they stay healthy, they're top six can battle with any other team's top six. I, I promise you that that they're going to be a hard team to play up front. Um, I, I think, you know, on the back end too, their defense has gotten a lot better, not to mention you have a, an amazing tandem of goalies still. So 
I think this team's closer than a lot of people think, and, and we'll see what they do. I don't think they'll make the playoffs, but they're definitely going to be in the hunt if some teams have down years. And then for the Tigers, jumping over to the MLB, Miggy is still very close to his 500th home run, but uh, it was not helped the other night when the Tigers got blown out 11-0 to and almost got a no-hitter thrown against them. So not a very good night for the Tigers, but despite the hurtful loss, uh, and in the last couple of games, there have been great fan attendances. Uh, you look at it on TV. I personally have not made a trip to Comerica yet this year, but Comerica Park on the TV was absolutely packed to watch Miguel Cabrera try to hit his 500th home run, and it looked phenomenal. It looked like a lot of fun, uh, even despite that 11-0 loss. I'm sure that until he gets that 500th career home run, there's going to be massive fan attendance. And uh, despite the loss, you know, it, it definitely shows that the Tigers are, when they get back to their winning ways especially, the crowd is going to be enormous, just enormous at Comerica Park. I think, you know, I think back to 2013, and by the way, in 2013, it was very young, so this feels like a long time ago. So in 2013, I think back to that and how good they were and watching it on TV and seeing how many people were there and everyone was a Tigers fan. You'd walk down the hallways at school and everyone would have their Tiger stuff on. And obviously lately that's kind of wavered. You really haven't seen the same enthusiasm. And I guess it goes for all Detroit sports, but uh, despite being down right now, they have made huge steps. They are 58 and 62 right now going into a series against the angels who are not far off from 500 themselves. I think they are one game below 500 or maybe one game above 500 right now, but they've floated around that, you know, middle mark the entire season. So they have a chance, you know, against the angels. And, and if they, you know, if they get a sweep, they're one game away from 500, you know, but in all likelihood, I don't see them sweeping the Angels, but they have a good chance. And I really want to see Miggy hit that 500th career home run during the series. And I'd like to see them win a couple of games in this series. But even if they don't, I mean, the 58-62 and 62 record they have right now, I will take, especially considering the huge step forward they've taken from 2019, where they were 47-114. and 114. That's like a 30% win percentage. It's not very good. And then last year, too, in the shortened season, they uh, really weren't good either, uh, right around the same mark uh, at about 40%, 30 40% of winning percentage. So I, I, they definitely have a long way to go. But again, I, I take it. I'm so glad to see that they you know can win games. Like, you can watch the baseball game, you know, and, and you can say, hey, you know, they – they could win, you know, like they have a good chance to win. It's almost as equal as a chance that they'll lose, you know, 50, 50, right around 500, you know? And I think they're not far off, you know, a couple adjustments on their defense, getting a shortstop, you know, and then getting some real big hitters 
so their offense doesn't go into the you know the shell that they go in as seen last night when they lost eleven to zero. You know that was just a uh, one of their rare nights this season where both their offense and defense wasn't clicking. Usually it's one or the other. Last night it was it was all of the above. So still a long way to go, but a massive improvement has been seen this year. And uh, even with some smarter decision-making, uh, like I think about last night, I think it was Jonathan uh, Schlope had a play where, where I think he could have thrown it, you know, to, to second and gotten an out, but instead he, he threw it a home and, and the throw ended up being missed and they, they scored. And, and I think they might've gotten another run from it too. But that was a little, the little things there that, you know, they can clean up and that they'll be better and I'll make a difference. So I I have no doubt that the Tigers are going to be good, better next year and better the next year. Same as every other Detroit team. I I know that they're building in the right directions right now. The Pistons are obviously building in the right direction. Tigers, Red Wings. The only question mark, obviously, is the Lions. But we'll talk about them when we talk about the preseason. Uh, As for now, though, the before-mentioned Pistons, uh, Cade Cunningham is definitely the real deal so far. He has been great uh, in summer league. I've enjoyed watching that. Uh, The Pistons certainly hope he's going to be their new ace, and he looks like he will be so far. Uh, I think summer league has proven that he's going to, you know, commit and make great steps to becoming better than he already is, too. And it's clear that he loves being in Detroit and that's already a big plus, you know, if he can continue to enjoy being in this city and he truly wants to be part of the change to make this team better. I think the Pistons are, are not far off either. I mean, I think as far as the, the rebuilds go between the Tigers, Red Wings and Pistons go, I think the Pistons are smack there in the middle where I won't say they're quite as far away as people think, but I definitely think the Tigers are going to be good before they are. And I think the Red Wings will likely be better than they are too, but it's a toss up between there. I think they're both kind of at the same points where this year is going to really show how big of a step they've taken. Other news from around the NBA though. uh, I saw the other day that Dennis Schroeder was, traded to the Celtics on a one-year deal, so a change in scenery for him. But I got to wonder that I really don't think the Celtics were anywhere close this year, and I don't think they're going to be next year, even with this addition. Other news, too, the the Clippers. This happened last night. I was actually at a movie when I saw this, and I was like, whoa, that's pretty big, is that the Clippers trade Patrick Beverly and Rajon Rondo for Eric Blasseau. And uh, Blasso joins the his former team. He played for and was drafted by the Clippers, I believe. Uh, so he'll join Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And it's a it's a small bit of a retool for the Clippers. Obviously, they weren't able to get it done in the playoffs, and, and quite frankly, they came up short after dominating the regular season in the West. But the Suns just had a, a tremendous year. So it's not selling them too short, and I definitely think this little move might be good. But, you know, Blasso is 31 years old, and, and 
I'm not sure if it's quite enough what they're going to do. I mean, like I said, they had a great regular season, but I still definitely favor Phoenix next year. I, I think they're going to have another good year. And if you ask me right now who I thought was going to win the championship next year, uh, well, I mean, the obvious answer there is the Lakers after everything they've done in the off season. But I'm not sure if I buy that. I, I actually think Phoenix. I, I would go with my gut and say Phoenix because they came so close this year that I think coming up here in this following year, it's a make or break year for them. Obviously, Chris Paul is getting older. And Devin Booker's hungry for it still. It's, you know, the team is relatively the same. So I think that they're going to get it on the run back. I think so. I mean, we'll sit here, you know, in the next year, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, you know, how right or wrong I was, because I have a long memory. I'll, I'll remember me saying this. And I don't think I'm going to change on it either. You know, I'm going to go with my gut, and I think Phoenix has a good shot. And I, I don't ultimately, even with this trade, I do not think the Clippers – are going to be able to stand up to Phoenix next year. That being said, though, I suppose we should get into the NFL preseason. It was a, an interesting first week. I, I normally don't pay much attention to the preseason because as a fan, especially as a fan of the Lions, the preseason doesn't mean a whole lot to me. You know, it's it's nice to see now, because I'm, I'm paying much closer attention to prospects, you know, and futures than I was before. But before, as just a fan watching the games, I, I held no interest because I, I know the past of the team where the preseason can look as promising as it possibly could. And then it'll all fall apart. You can win every game in the preseason and then you can lose every game in the regular season. So that being said, though, I mean, my expectations were not very great for the Lions going in, especially with Stafford gone. Uh, I was interested and intrigued to see what Jared Goff had to offer. But ultimately, I mean, it was about as I expected. I am just glad that football is finally back for the long term, though. Uh, I watched a couple of games, and uh, the first overall pick, Trevor Lawrence for Jacksonville was pretty solid in his debut. And the overall feeling I got from watching him was that he lacks calmness. You know, obviously it'll come with experience, but it almost feel, felt like he was rushing each play. You know, he was, you know, either that or he was a tad late. There really wasn't an in-between. He just didn't feel comfortable. And, and like I said, it'll come with experience but ultimately, I mean, the whole line is at fault, too. I'm not sure whether or not they had their, their starter offensive line with the starting, what I assume is going to be their starting quarterback. And I assume they would, but, you know, he just didn't look comfortable in, in the collapsing pocket. And I was definitely surprised, too, by their play calls. You know, when I, when I think back to his time in college, I think that he could really sling the ball, right? You know, I thought he was very... You know, he had that finesse that a lot of quarterbacks in college don't have where, I, you know, and his accuracy was of note. So I was very surprised when I watched this game at the play calls that there were so many screen passes, you know, and so many short passes. I, I'd expect, you know, 15-yard passes and, and sometimes, you know, the bigger gains. 
but a lot of screen passes and a lot of really short passes, not not as much creativity as I, I thought that we'd see out of Jacksonville. And I, I definitely would be surprised, too, if they keep this same rotation of plays into the regular season because I, I was not impressed by it. I think they could do a lot better because if this kid can, you know, gain on his confidence and get comfortable and start slinging the ball that, you know, we know the way he can do, uh, I think he has – the potential to turn around the franchise, you know, overnight too. He's a, he's a generational quarterback. And I, I really don't think this is going to be a Johnny football situation where, you know, he's drafted and then falls through the cracks. I I think he's committed and I think he's going to be great, but uh, yeah, certainly the play calls there were, were a bit surprising. For the bears though, I loved watching Justin Fields. I went back and checked out his highlights too, so I could get a, a better thought about how he was playing. And the one thing that's evident is that he has confidence and, you know, he's, he's got the footwork, but again, the lack of experience, you know, that was to be expected showed throughout the game. And I was surprised by the amount of, you know, times he, you know, tilted his head back and just threw up a jump ball, like a random air ball, you know, I expected him to be a little more hesitant to air, air, just randomly air out the ball. But he definitely wasn't. I mean, he just aired it out, and it led to a couple situations that, you know, were almost picked off. And I think that he needs to take a little bit more time to just find the accurate pass and find the open guy and not just take a couple steps back and, and do that college random throw up because it's not going to work, especially in the NFL. But he's definitely quick on his feet. His throwing accuracy needs work. But, I mean, he's very great at, at deciding when to scramble. And when he does scramble, he's good at escaping. So I am impressed by that. But his throwing needs work. And, and we'll see whether or not they, they decide to hone in on that and get him passing the way that he could. And then Trey Lance. Okay, so Trey Lance was actually the most impressive to me. And uh, that surprised me. I, I mean, going in, I, I definitely expected uh, Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, to be the one to watch. But ultimately, both he and Fields, I, I you know, there's a, a bit left on the table there. You know, and you, obviously in preseason, you don't get a huge taste of them and you can only take the small sample that you're given. But in Trey Lance's case, I mean, he impressed me. I mean, he, he could clearly air out the ball very well. And in, in the first quarter, that was right away. I, he had the confidence that he sold the run so well on the play action that led to the touchdown in the first quarter. That was beautiful. And then he aired it out perfectly. Uh, the only thing that I saw on the play was that, obviously, he could have hit the the runner in stride a little more. but But the receiver I forget who it was clearly burned his defensive counterparts off the line and he he had enough time to kind of wait for the ball to get over him but it was a beautiful play action pass and he aired it out very long pass great touchdown from him and the rest of the game you know for him was solid too I mean when he was given the time which the I knew that the, the offensive line for San Francisco was going to be very good 
but when he was given the time in the pocket, he could find the perfect pass. And more often than not, he would, and he'd hit the target brilliantly. So, I mean, by far, he's had the, he had the best accuracy out of any of the rookie quarterbacks so far. And overall, I think he's been the best rookie out of week one. And then for the Jets, Zach Wilson. So he's very calm, and, he, and he's definitely level-headed, and that's the the number one thing that I took from him that, you know, some of the other two, other three didn't have. And that obviously the Jets O-line is not the best, so I was kind of surprised that he had that calmness. I think he was consistent on finding the best play available, the best throws available, but... I think he got much smaller of a sample size than anyone was expecting. He, he didn't play a ton in week one, so hopefully he gets more reps this coming week. And I expect he's probably going to have the most improvement as the season progresses because that Jets franchise is depending on him to make that step. And, and obviously Jacksonville is for Trevor Lawrence too, but Zach Wilson is kind of more of a question whether or not he's going to be able to step up to the plate. And he definitely has the work ethic to do so. He was calm and this game showed it. So hopefully we get more of a sample size this coming week so I can decipher a little more about him. And then for the Detroit Lions. So (laughs) the Detroit Lions handed their fans a heartbreaking loss in week one of the preseason. And that's about the most Lions thing you can do. Uh, they weren't able to stop the running game on defense. The uh, same problem as last year. I mean, the run game for the other team, we make them look like all-stars. Uh, and Jared Goff, I it's unfair for Jared Goff because he is put up against Matt Stafford, right? Everything he does for this entire year is going to be compared to what Matt Stafford did last year and what he did throughout his career in Detroit. But the truth of the matter is, is Goff and Stafford are two entirely different quarterbacks with two entirely different styles. Whereas Stafford loved to go to the air game and he could air it out and throw deep and he could throw on the run. He can throw cross body. I mean, you look at the people, the players, for the Rams right now that are talking about playing against Stafford on defense. And they're talking about like, he's making throws that they've never seen before and that the defense could never expect in practice, you know, where they have a a basic understanding of, of the playbook and Matt Stafford's making these throws that they would never expect for Jared Goff. I mean, he's a very average quarterback. And I think people are going to see this year just how good Matt Stafford really was and that, you know, the people of Detroit who know he he's one of the greatest, you know, it's going to show this year. But for Jared Goff, it's unfair that he's going to be compared to Stafford because ultimately he's just not as good. And, and where Stafford can throw it deep downfield, Goff isn't going to be able to do that. Like he, he can't get under the ball anywhere close. I mean, Stafford could throw it downfield without any effort and Goff is going to stick to short passes. And we saw a taste of that where, you know, 
he's going to have a different set of plays completely. So, and the offensive line wasn't very good either, so he didn't have time. Our running game was inconsistent. And the biggest surprise from the game, actually, was when David Blau got a chance to come in. I thought he played good. I thought that he had some great passes. I thought he was throwing better than um, better than Goff was all game long. But to be fair, by the time David Blau got in, I mean, you're, you're against some pretty deep prospects in the pool. So I, I don't, you know... He played good, but albeit it was against a lower-tier defense. So I don't think it's super comparable, but Jared Goff wasn't anything impressive, but he's about where I expected him to be and where I expected the Lions' offense to be in general. Swift was out, so we didn't get a a look at him. And hopefully this week we can see some more out of the lions and, and see if their offense has a little more capability or if it's going to stay right around this mark, which I expect. Uh, and as for the game though, the heartbreaking loss, I mean, they battled close all game. Obviously the bills had a ton more yards, but the lions were somehow able to come up in the red zone most of the time and keep them to either a field goal or get a turnover. But the bills had a ton more yardage than the lions had all game. And then uh, the Lions took a a late lead, like 15 to 13. And the Bills came down in the last minute, kicked a field goal. So uh, ultimately a heartbreaking loss. But it is just preseason, and uh, I don't think anyone's expectations are huge. So going forward, I think that as long as they win four or five games, I think that overall this year is going to be a win. So now it's time to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. So we're going to spend the last little bit of this show talking about motorsports, IndyCar and NASCAR in particular. And it is, uh, it's It was difficult to find the words for what we witnessed over the weekend at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but I'm going to try my best to formulate it into the best words that I have, and it's easier for IndyCar. So, and right off the bat, the decision to bring IndyCar and NASCAR to the same venue on the same weekend was great. And I want to see more of it, not only at Indianapolis, but I want to see it at other tracks. You know, when they go to Road America, that's a track that, you know, they all race at, bring IndyCar to Road America. You know, turn these into super events that are going to be hubs for a ton of different people. And while you, I don't know if it's the best case for Road America, because obviously we saw NASCAR bring in 100,000 plus fans for their race. And then IndyCar brings in their own set of fans too. It's two events that road America can bring money into. So I I don't think road America is necessarily to the point where you need to do that. It makes sense at Indianapolis because Indianapolis for both the Indy 500 or uh, for the Indy road course race and the Brickyard 400 has struggled in attendance. So it makes sense to, you know, co-op it together 
to bring more fans in. And it definitely had more appeal to fans this year than it has in Europe's past where it raced on the oval, but that's been part of the debate and IndyCar helps that. But something that I think they should do is when they bring Nashville super speedway, whether they keep that or they bring in the Nashville fairgrounds, finally, I think they should pair that with the Nashville street circuit for IndyCar. And I think that'll have huge fan draw. I, I think that's a good idea. Overall, IndyCar and NASCAR at the same weekend has a huge appeal to a huge amount of people. And personally, I, I certainly want to go to an event like that where I get to see both of them at once. For IndyCar, though, at the Indy Road Course, the championship leader, Alex Pelot, uh, looked to be set to gain on his points lead coming into the race, but had engine troubles, surprisingly, that led to an early retirement. So he took a decent hit in the points. Uh, and then for the race win, Colton Herta and Roman Grosjean, Grosjean join Will Power on the podium. Will Power finally gets a win this season. Uh, it's good to see him on the top step of the podium. Uh, the kink in the infield during the race was probably the most entertaining spot to watch because it had that speed bump where drivers would hit it and they'd go airborne. So throughout the race, there were cars hitting it. One of them ramped off and almost landed on top of Jimmy Johnson. And speaking of Jimmy Johnson, he certainly had the best outing of his career so far. Like He looked competitive. He was passing cars. He finished on the lead lap for the first time in his rookie season. So it's great to see, you know, I think this showed finally that he has the potential. You know, he's been racing on tracks that he is super unfamiliar with. So to finally, you know, come to a track where he's, you know, historically had success at too, at the Brickyard, in NASCAR anyway, you know, to come here and to have his best performance, I think shows a lot of people that, hey, you know, he's, he has the potential, you know, he's obviously a great race car driver. So in the IndyCar seat, he's going to be fine if he's given, you know, the proper amount of time to learn these tracks. It's ultimately up to him whether or not he actually wants to stick around long enough to become one of the greats of the sport, which I don't think he wants to. But that kink in the middle of the infield, the rest of the track, right, where everyone was ramping up, that is going to be a ma major talking point for weeks to come. And certainly even as this show progresses right now, I, you'll see when I talk about NASCAR that that area was a problem. Alex Albon was also in attendance, uh, which led to speculation over him coming to IndyCar an entrance for him into the series anyway. And I think it'd be pretty cool for the former Red Bull Racing F1 driver to join IndyCar, much as Roman Grosjean has. And I personally think Alex Albon's better than Roman Grosjean. So it'd be interesting to see what a young driver like he can do when he has so much open wheel expertise. I'd like to see him go to IndyCar, maybe go to Aero McLaren, I know that has close Formula One ties, so it'd be interesting to see Alex Albon go to IndyCar. And I, I personally really like Albon and was kind of sad to see him be replaced with Sergio Perez at the beginning of this year. But 
certainly so far, it seems like Red Bull has made a decent choice there. The IndyCar race was definitely solid, but overall, I think it was the event, you know, the pairing with NASCAR that got people talking about it. And IndyCar too, I mean, hasn't had the the same popularity that it, that it has had, you know, in the past. I think the Indy 500 is still regarded regarded as one of the biggest races in the world, right? But outside of that, a lot of people don't really pay much attention to IndyCar anymore. So obviously IndyCar wants to grow as a series and pairing it with NASCAR as NASCAR, you know, reinstates itself as one of the major sports in North America, I think it's a good idea because they can grow off each other and they can create one large fan base. As for NASCAR, though, where we're going to spend the rest of this episode, there was a huge debate going into this race over ending the tradition and ending the crown jewel race of the oval, you know, the Brickyard 400 on the actual oval. And you add the pairing with IndyCar to the weekend, and you had a lot of people talking about this coming in. And there were a lot of drivers who were like, man, I don't want to, you know, I'd rather have the oval. I mean, Kyle Busch wanted the oval. Everyone wanted the oval, it seemed. There were some drivers, Joey Logano, you know, and, and Martin Truex Jr., who were just kind of like, yeah, it is what it is. And NASCAR kind of had to do the thing where they put the driver's opinions aside and do it based on what they need to do. Because it's no secret that the racing at Indianapolis Motor Speedway has been horrible in years past. Just boring races strung out races and fan attendance there just has been poor. There hasn't been anyone going to that race. So it makes sense that they would want to try something different. And this became an appeal and got more people there than I think would have been if it was raced on the oval. It was definitely a solid weekend. Xfinity's race was fine there. And uh, AJ Allmendinger ended up coming second to Austin Sindrick. So that was good for Xfinity. It was a good race as far as that went. And the rest of the weekend was very solid until it was turned into one of the biggest disasters I've seen in NASCAR in about the course of 10 laps. So before we get into it, though, let's talk about the results. So the top 10. In 10th was Ryan Newman. And I remember when I turned on this race, he was in 37th. 36th or 37th. He was at the tail end of the lead lap. He had damage to his car that uh, hung out and made his rear like a parachute. So he was very slow. He ends up finishing 10th. And the rest of the top 10 is chaotic too. Austin Sendrick finished 9th after... A spin. In eighth was Justin Haley in the Spire Motorsports 77, which is bizarre because that car does not have any speed in it. In seventh was Eric Jones, a good result for him. In sixth was Kurt Busch. Fifth was Matt DiBenedetto. And in fourth, Chase Elliott. Third, Kyle Larson, who dominated this race. Second, Ryan Blaney. And the rest of, rest of Team Penske 
had a horrible couple of weeks. I mean, last week was horrible for Team Pemsky. Brad Keselowski had his setup problems at Watkins Glen, wrecking a couple times. Uh, Keselowski wrecked again on his own uh, yesterday and destroyed the back end of his car. And Blaney somehow gets second. And in first was A.J. Allmendinger. Just a huge win for A.J. Allmendinger and Matt Colleague's racing team, which is going full-time next year. I don't think they would have ever expected to get a win this year. And Matt Colleague was almost in tears in the victory celebrations, but it was great to see them get the win. So, however, he got the win, but it wasn't necessarily the way you'd expect it. This race was Denny Hamlin's to win. And Denny Hamlin should have won this race. And Chase Briscoe is at fault for Denny Hamlin not winning this race. And Chase Briscoe, the final set, the final restart, blew through turn one, got forced off a little bit, and went into the grass, rejoined the track, uh, battling with Hamlin, and then finished the rest of the lap battling with Hamlin. But, of course, Briscoe got a penalty for exceeding track limits. And later in the lap, as Briscoe's battling Hamlin, he gets into Hamlin and he spins Hamlin. And so Hamlin, who doesn't have a win this year, ends up getting wrecked by a car that was black flagged and wasn't going to win the race either, no matter what. So the third place driver, A.J. Allmendinger, gets the lead and pretty much has the race handed to him. And that's right place, right time. I mean, Allmendinger had been around the top 10 most of the day, and I'm sure that's not at all how they expected that to play out, but... I mean, he raced his way up to third, and, and sometimes things happen. I mean, we saw the first race of the year, the Bush class, clash, that Chase Elliott and Brian Blaney took each other out, and Kyle Bush was in third at the right place, right time, and he won. And that stuff happens sometimes. But ultimately, Denny Hamlin had a win taken from him by a car that was black flagged. And Briscoe, obviously, he, he said uh, – post-race and a story that everyone believes and that even Denny Hamlin can accept that Briscoe had no idea he was going to get penalized. And I mean, he did get forced off. So I kind of understand why he was, you know, not certain on if he'd get a penalty and that he was racing hard the rest of the lap and that just ultimately got into Hamlin and spun him. But if you're Denny Hamlin, I mean, you just got wrecked by a guy that was black flagged. And got your first one of the season ripped away from you. So they had a conversation after the race. He saw Denny Hamlin. There was the the coverage of him walking down pit lane towards where Chase Briscoe was parked. And I was like, oh, they're going to fight. And to my surprise, they just had a conversation. He just walked over there and he had a conversation with Chase Briscoe. And obviously... Denny was very upset and Chase Briscoe was, you know, pleading his case and ultimately Denny Hamlin could accept it, but said, you know, that's a lack of awareness. Like, how do you not know you're going to get black flagged after going through the grass at part of the track? To be fair, that is poor situational awareness. It's, you should know that you're probably going to get penalized for that, uh, despite the fact getting forced off a little bit. So I understand Denny Hamlin's anger with that. But I also understand the anger of Kyle Larson, who absolutely dominated today's race. And his win was certain until the debris caution with 10 laps to go. 
And in fact, Hendrick Motorsports in general should be a little upset about this weekend because the top three with 10 to go was Larson, Elliott, and Byron. They had battled among themselves for most of the day. And now one of them didn't even finish in the top 10 for reasons I can barely explain. It was all undone for them after a late caution for debris. It was right outside where all the madness would later happen. And and I don't know quite if there's a turn name for it, but I'm going to refer to it as the kink. You know, it's a a little leg where they they go through and swivel. So I'm going to call it the kink. And so they call the debris caution which led to what was probably the most chaotic race I have ever seen, ever. Uh, the final, To put it in perspective for you, the final 10 laps of this race took about two hours. Was, was almost as long as, was probably actually as long as the race itself. It, it was one of the craziest endings I've ever seen. Uh, so once they restarted this race after the debris caution, Martin Truex Jr. got turned uh, right at that kink, you know, and debris kicks up everywhere, right? And he spins and hits the tire barrier, but they stay green. They leave the green flag out. Martin Truex Jr. gets straightened out and, and leaves the area, but there's still debris everywhere. And it's a wonder to me that NASCAR did not call a caution right there when there is clearly debris all over the track. And they, they were like, whatever, you know, we're going to, we don't think there's a problem. We're going to let them race through that another time. And, and part of what the debris was when he got spun was that that curb at the kink got tore up a little bit, lifted up off the track. So the next time that the cars came through there, William Byron digs his splitter into the curb and explodes his front end. Kyle Bush goes through there, tears up his front end. Logano goes through there, tears up his front end. Logano buries himself straight into the tire barrier because obviously you can't steer once you lose the front end of your car. Brian Priest was caught up into it. Justin Haley spun and more were were just taken out by this curb. And I'm sure when William Byron went through it, it tore the oil pan off of it. I'm sure there was oil all over the track after that. So a bunch of cars pile into this huge pileup, which basically came down to the fact that NASCAR just didn't throw a debris caution. A needed caution for debris on the track. It was baffling to me that they called it for the piece that was outside the kink, but then didn't call it after that. And by the way, they were working on this curb throughout the race. They knew it was a problem. There were cars that were losing splitters there that were digging under there, right? They were working on it during every caution. So after they go through there and a, and a ton of debris gets kicked up, they turn away from it and let them go through it another time. And that was very poor judgment on their part. It was very dangerous. So Byron, Kyle Busch, Logano, Priest, and more are all taken out by this. Logano was okay, thankfully. I mean, he barreled in there about as fast as you can. I mean, you're wide open through there. So he barreled in there. Kyle Busch, not really much he could have done. He had right side damage. Byron was the unfortunately the first one to go through there that had the problem but the other leaders didn't seem to have a problem so this led of course to a very very long red flag like a 45 minute red flag 
And I was sitting there and I was like, man, I mean, they really, it gave me a lot of time to think about it. That they should have thrown the caution. And then, you know, there's the debate on whether or not they should just end the race right there. But ultimately, I mean, the fans came, they wanted to finish. They deserved to finish and everyone watching at home deserved to finish too. So it was a bad look for NASCAR and it was definitely bad officiating and it was dangerous on top of all that. But after a very, very long red flag, they finally restarted this race and immediately wrecked at the same spot. So they, during that red flag, what they were doing is they were removing the curb completely. And they were taking out a curb. And obviously you have the marks as a driver that you're going to hit. You know, you know that you're going to, you know, ride that curb as you go through there. They removed the curb completely, just took it out because it was clearly too dangerous. So they hauled off the curb. And the problem there, you remember when we talked about IndyCar, I said there was that like speed bump. It was like a ramp that cars were launching off of. So now the only thing there through that little swivel is a speed bump. So if you miss by a matter of inches, you launch off a speed bump. So the very next time they go through there at speed, when they restart the race, Michael McDowell launches off of the curb and spins in front of everyone, collects the two RCR cars, and damages a couple more too. Daniel Suarez, I think, was actually involved with the first one. And uh, huge mess again. They wreck, and it leads to another red flag, so they can fix tire barriers. And there were cars that had ripped oil pans, you know, and were leaking oil all over the track. They went and they poured Speedy Dry all over the track after these two accidents. And it looked horrible. It looked like someone took a big bag of flour and poured it all over the track. And when they go through there, it's just a bunch of dust and you can't see anything. So I thought that was going to lead to some problems, you know, visibility problems like at Bristol Dirt and at Coda. But ultimately, it led to that big speed bump being a problem, taking out a couple more drivers. In that wreck, Bubba Wallace, just he knew he was going to miss the corner. He shot through there at speed, like a torpedo, just went right through there. And uh, he somehow, it was amazing to watch him avoid everyone, but ultimately had a stop and go penalty for shooting through the corner. And uh, that was the extent of the chaos that led to another restart. Uh, then, of course, the business with Hamlin and Briscoe happened, where Briscoe spun Hamlin and Briscoe went off track, leading to Almondinger and Matt Collig's First win at the Brickyard, and it was redemption for Almondinger after losing his Xfinity Series race the last day. I mean, I'd, I'd say winning a Cup Series race is well, well worth it. But very bad look for NASCAR. So with all of that unpacked now, what I thought of the race. So like I said, it was a good race up until 10 laps to go. You know, when they threw that debris caution, I was like, oh, cool, we're going to get an exciting finish. I would have never imagined, you know, it would take two hours to finish the la the last couple laps. And it was funny. And they had to switch the coverage from regular NBC to NBC Sports Network. And, you know, it just became a mess as it progressed. It got worse and worse for NASCAR, and they were put into worse and worse situations. My personal take on it is I never wanted them to leave the Oval. I understand why they did, you know, I understand that track attendance, you know, was at an all-time low. They used to pack the stands for the Brickyard. 
but ultimately these cars just didn't race very well and the long straightaways just led to single file racing the flat corners single flat file racing you know it it left a lot to be desired and i understand the want to change and the road course to be fair was very clean it was fine until the end but even without this mess and even without the wrecks i still would have preferred the oval and I get the attendance problems, but I think that this is one of the instances where it's just that track means so much to the drivers and is such a great tradition that I think they could have found other ways to make the oval more appealing, whether that was bringing IndyCar and letting them race the road course at the same weekend, or whether that was creating a new package where the stock cars race a little better on the oval itself, I think they could have done a couple more things that would have, you know, drawn interest before doing this. And, and I, I like the oval. I, I got to see the oval in 2016. I, I went there with my dad and, and it was, I liked it in person. I, I thought it was cool. It had a, a good ending, a couple of late wrecks that were very surprising. I, I didn't mind it at all. That was a very good race. And, and the drivers love the track. I, I like the oval and that's my opinion. You know, there's, you know, obviously there's people who enjoyed the road course, you know, even with the chaos and, and they, they loved it and they think it should be a thing for years to come. I, I think the IndyCar NASCAR thing should be a thing for years to come, but personally, I, I prefer the oval and I want to see them back at the oval and, and some drivers agree too. Uh, after the wreck that Austin Dillon was caught up in, he said, that they should certainly be out there on the oval. Kyle Busch today, this morning, posted a picture with his son where he was saying, can you believe there's a perfectly good oval out there? Believe it or not, there is. You know, and and he's got a point. Daniel Suarez this morning posted a tweet that said, you know, all NASCAR drivers and all NASCAR, everyone involved with it, should be embarrassed with themselves at what is supposed to be the top level of auto racing. And he's got a point. I mean, it was pretty embarrassing. I mean, people love the chaos, you know, and that, that's why they enjoyed it. But ultimately, it, you know, it was kind of embarrassing. It was, it was not, it was very messy for what you expect professionals to be at. So, and it, it was indeed a mess, but that's also what made it so polarizing. You know, chaos, chaos is what helped NASCAR form its popularity in the early 2000s. You know, and, and that was chaos. This entire, you know, end of the race was chaos. So there's the traditional fans that, you know, hated it and were like, this isn't what racing's supposed to be. And then there were, you know, the newer fans or, or the casual fans that were like, that's awesome. You know, we all, ha all have them, those friends, you know, that love watching racing because they want to see a wreck. Well, you got plenty of that, you know, there's, so it was very polarizing. You know, fans were, you know, either loved or hated it. And then drivers were either unfazed or, you know, very unhappy. You see Joey Logano, you know, after getting taken out by the curb, he was like, yeah, it is what it is. You know, he was casual about it. Like it, you know, it happens. But there are other drivers, you know, that even didn't get caught up in wrecks that were like, I hated this. You know, I want to be back on the old. This chaos got people talking about NASCAR. And NASCAR has needed for years to, you know, 
have some relevance and have people talking or tweeting or, you know, anything about them, right? And because this ending of the race was so unpredictable, it became a perfect disaster for them. Where you have an unusual amount of people tweeting about them. You have an unusual amount of people tuning into YouTube to watch their highlights, to see the mess themselves. You know, and, and this is literally a car crash that you can't look away from. You know, it it becomes that kind of situation. So while NASCAR may not want to be at the center of controversy all the time, it has gotten new people to take a look at it that I don't think would have looked at it had it not happened. So it, it's... It's a lot like, you know, your local short track or your local race at the fairgrounds when you go to the fair. You know, there's people who don't necessarily care for racing that go there because they're like, man, I want to see a wreck or man, I want to see some rivalries or people slamming doors, right? It's that kind of mentality, but very extreme. So obviously there's going to be people who don't like it. You know, I'm teetering on the line where it's like, I, I don't really like the idea of people getting hurt you know, and being unsafe. And I think that was unsafe, but there's going to be the people that are like, yeah, it's racing, you know, it's always going to be unsafe and things like this are, are interesting and they get people talking about it. So I understand that. And whether or not it's, you know, good or not good is going to come down to the individual. It's, a, it's what you think about it. You know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm right on the line. I, I think it's good for the sport that so many people are talking about it like this, you know, but I also think that it's bad, you know, safety can become a concern, you know, where they can make safety better is where they should, you know, they, they can, and that's on Indianapolis motor speedway too, you know, on the track president, on the track group that that curb was unsafe, you know, that that's on them, not on NASCAR, but, you know, not throwing a debris caution and not, you know, when you know that curb's probably damaged, not throwing a caution, that's where it becomes dangerous and leads to wrecks like that, that fans either love or hate. It's going to be interesting to see if that event returns next year or in the coming years, though. That's my thoughts on it. Like I said, it was absolutely crazy. So next week's winners, though, we'll get into what we'll talk about next week. NASCAR visits Michigan, my home track. I would be going to this race, but... uh, after the day after that race, I'm flying to Florida, so I will not be going to that race, but I will be going to the race at Daytona in two weeks, and I'm sure I'll talk about that. But next week, I'll talk about the race at Michigan, what we see out of the three series there. Uh, we'll talk about IndyCar at Gateway Speedway, a very unusual oval. See them racing there. And of course, we'll talk about NFL's second week of the preseason. And we'll probably talk about a lot more, whatever I see fit for next week. But for now, that is going to be it for this week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, tune in next week. If you have a question or want to know my thoughts, follow me on Twitter at TWW Sports. A reminder, if you missed any of today's show, this week's winners is now live on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next week, everybody, I will see you later. You've been listening to this week's winners on 88.3 FM, WXOU.